If you're anything like me, creating a podcast is a lot of work, putting together concepts and finding people to speak on and affirm the soft black women, as well as fighting imposter syndrome. This podcast is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor is a free, easy to use platform for creating, uploading, and distributing your podcast. There are creative tools that will help you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor guides you through the process of creating a name and even designing the cover. Recording episodes is made easy with their library of background music and transition sounds. You can even earn money on your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. If you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to Dear Soft Black Woman. I'm your host, Rose J. Percy. And today's episode is actually quite different from the others. Um, Instead of an interview with a guest, I will actually be interviewing myself. And now, while that concept might sound rather strange, um, it is actually inspired by a uh, project I'm doing for a class, um, a class I'm taking on critical pedagogy. And one of the books we read in this class, aside from the classic Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, is uh, Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. And in one of the chapters of that book, Bell Hooks actually interviews herself. So she asks herself questions using her real name, Gloria Watkins, to her pen name, Bell Hooks. And the entire chapter is devoted to her describing her relationship with the work of Paulo Freire and his impact on on her life and her praxis for education that liberates. And taking from that theme, I decided that it would be important to do an episode of a podcast where I kind of like reflect on what we've done so far in conversations with others and also build on that work in explaining kind of like how I got here. I realize that you may have heard bits and pieces of um, who I am through these conversations and maybe have grasped onto some of the concepts as we've gone along, Um, but it might be important to just kind of like learn how um, I've gotten to the process of starting this podcast and deciding to do this kind of work. So along with describing some of the ways that Paulo Freire has influenced me, I will also talk about um, a bunch of other thinkers who have contributed to helping me shape and name um, the goals of this podcast and the questions that I ask and the answers that I seek. Welcome back to Dear Soft Black Woman. I'm your host, Rose J. Percy. And today's episode is actually quite different from the others. Um, Instead of an interview with a guest, I will actually be interviewing myself. And now, while that concept might sound rather strange, um, it is actually inspired by a uh, project that I'm doing for a class, um, a class I'm taking on critical pedagogy. And one of the books we read in this class, aside from the classic Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, is uh, Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. And in one of the chapters of that book, Bell Hooks actually interviews herself. So she asks herself questions using her real name, Gloria Watkins, to her pen name, Bell Hooks. And the entire chapter is devoted to her describing her relationship with the work of Paulo Freire and his impact on um, on her life and her praxis for education that liberates. And taking from that theme, I decided that it would be important to do an episode of a podcast where I kind of like reflect on what we've done so far in conversations with others and also build on that work in explaining kind of like how I got here. I realize that you may have heard bits and pieces of um, who I am through these conversations and maybe have grasped onto some of the concepts as we've gone along, Um, but it might be important to just kind of like learn how 
um, I've gotten to the process of starting this podcast and deciding to do this kind of work. So along with describing some of the ways that Paulo Freire has influenced me, I will also talk about um, a bunch of other thinkers who have contributed to helping me shape and name um, the goals of this podcast and the questions that I ask and the answers that I seek. So Bell Hooks opens up the chapter describing her relationship with Paulo Freire and his teachings in her book, Teaching to Transgress. How has Paulo Freire's work impacted you? Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is a classic. People who care about liberation often cite it as an influence and an inspiration. And for me, my first reading of Pedagogy of the Oppressed was in college. I took a class called Reconciliation and Justice, which was comprised of um, lots of different readings from like Angela Davis and others. Um, and at that time, reading books like that were very difficult for me. So reading Freire, like I found myself confused and stumbling over each of the paragraphs and lines and even phrases and taking my time to understand. And I think even now, I think I'm humbled to kind of reflect back and look at the fact that, wow, um, so many years have gone by and I'm still reading Paulo Freire with like the same closeness and attention and the words still grip me in a way that um, I find to be undoing and life-giving and challenging and consoling. Um, I'm in my third year of my Masters of Divinity program and people tend to think that because I've reached this level of education that I've always had the skills to learn in these institutions. Um, but I actually um, grew up in very like impoverished cities and um, I was always in remedial reading and math classes all the way through high school. And somehow on the, like the institutional track, um, like my the way that I was viewed and seen was like as a like problem student who had difficulty learning. Um, but I read all the time. Like I would go to the library and check out like nine to ten books a week and read those, return them, go back. And it just felt like the ways that I was being educated went against the ways I naturally wanted to learn and exist and to be. So I understood myself as a problem student for much of my time in education. Um, when it came time to go to college, I um, ended up having to go to a community college for a couple of years because I didn't have the kind of credit that I would need, the credits I needed to start at a four-year school right away. And so I did a couple of years of community college, and it was actually in community college where I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, I had a professor who like really believed in my writing and she was like you're really good are you sure you're supposed to be in this class and I'm like yeah that's what it says on my transcript that I need to take this writing class in order to take the next one so when I finally did get to a four-year college and in my senior year of of that school I took this class on reconciliation and justice and read Paulo Freire and I had an epiphany I am not a problem student there is nothing wrong with the way that I learn in fact, um, my resistance to the ways I've been educated, like the questions I would ask professors and teachers that got me into trouble and sent to the principal's office were part of uh, like a critical praxis could be used and engaged to ask questions like, why are things this way? And the more that I learn about justice and injustice um, and how it operates through the systems of education, the more I could understand that the reasons why I was always stuck on the remedial track and the reasons why I developed this understanding that I was a problem student tied to the problem of racism. This idea is supported by Charlene Carruthers' Unapologetic, a Black Queer Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. And she says, anti-Blackness works 24-7 to kill the Black imagination. This takes place when our, when our children are required to attend schools with no art and music programs. It takes place when black women's hairstyles are deemed unprofessional, ghetto, or simply ugly. 
The destructiveness is ongoing, chronic, but it is manifested acutely. It tells our children to dream of a better future instead of a better now and in the communities where they live. The killing of the black imagination happens when we are told we should aspire to work downtown and not on the corner next to where we live. Killing the black imagination is both place-based and psychological. It permeates what we watch on television and read on social media. And to wrap up this question, a full circle moment for me was being able to teach that same class, Reconciliation and Justice, as part of my contextual education and seminary. In that role, I was able to help students engage and ask questions and pose problems and have conversations and discussions where the answers were not always simple, easy, and clear. And it was wonderful and also terrifying because I'm pretty sure that there are about 20 or so students out there questioning systems and institutions, becoming problem students in the right way. And for me, this further emphasizes that Paulo Freire not only freed me to understand that being a problem for a system and institution was a good thing, but along my journey, I've learned to embrace being a problem teacher, someone who challenges the way things are and helps facilitate conversations for folks to think about what could be. Our next question is to just kind of explain how I arrived at this understanding of rest as vocation. And so for me, this is kind of a take on another definition of vocation that comes from Patrick Reyes, who is a practical theologian, educator, and he also um, does a lot of work with helping people discern vocation through theological studies. Um, And Patrick Reyes wrote this book called Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. And I recommend this book to seminary students, particularly um, those of us coming from uh, minoritized identities and, and, and communities, because there's a way of being that we are that we are shaped and molded into through these institutions that can be harmful, um, that that forces us to deny the realities of our bodies and the needs of our bodies to nourish our minds and to engage a dualism that is actually death dealing and in his own story um, Dr. Reyes talks about um, the challenges he faced in theological education having to confront his own daily realities and Paulo Freire would call these material conditions like the need for a place to live and work and commuting and um, not being able to to ease into the culture of the, of a place and feel alienated, all of these things that interrupt the learning process and journey that are just as important and formative in your experience as the syllabus, your classmates, the school itself. And for Dr. Reyes, like he came to this point um, in, in looking at the way vocation is often talked about. Vocation, I mean, Latin comes from the word uh I can never say Latin words right, but vocational, referring to a call or a summoning. And a lot of times we hear vocation being talked about as like a role or a job that one is to play, um, where all their gifts and graces that God has given them um, could be utilized. Um, And he actually points to his own understanding that God shaped for him through his story um, where survival was vocation. So survival as vocation. Um, and because, because he builds it on his life and his reflections, um, from like Latinx liberation theologies and other liberation theologies and practices, um, I kind of like turned the question to myself, like, what is vocation for me in this season? And the season that I was discerning my vocation was the year 2020. The year 2020 
was an exhausting year for so many people and we can argue that 2021 is just as if not more exhausting than 2020 was and in the midst of that I arrived at this understanding that rest was my vocation and I started to write affirmations about rest and the importance of rest and one of the affirmations goes like this inhale every waking moment does not need to be devoted to learning a marketable skill. Exhale. You are a human being, not a human product. And what I found interesting was that as I shared my affirmations that I was writing from a place of exhaustion and from that place um, of like being honest about my tiredness and letting my tiredness lead and teach me Um, a better way, a better way of responding to my own humanity. Um, I found myself in community with others who were affirming and agreeing as they experienced their own kinds of exhaustion and things like that. As I responded to my exhaustion, I picked up books on healing, health care and self-care, boundaries, spiritual formation and this was just one of them one of the many books that were offered to me or suggested to me that that dealt with it Um, but one of the ways that Dr. Reyes talks about vocation is like he asked the question like how am I to live when the world wants me dead and from there he responds with there are countless times when I could have died or my soul could have perished under the weight of violence in the world For me, in these instances, vocation has meant God calling me to live only when I was fully given the freedom and space to discern what living into full human flourishing looks like was I able to discern a call to do or be anything other than just alive. I didn't mention this earlier, but I first came across this definition um, when I started my contextual education. Uh, one of the things that we were supposed to write about was vocation or a sense of vocation. And this definition was given to me and I responded to it with this understanding that, wow, like survival is my vocation. I have to survive this. And for me as a black woman, as I engage and think about the ways that womanist theology looks at survival, like the book Sisters in the Wilderness by Dolores Williams specifically talks about how survival is just like one of the many stages on the path towards liberation. Often liberation conversations focus around the end goal, around revolution, around uh, protest and and the fight, whatever it is that is seen as like these um, epic moments, uh, these totalities. Um, but womanist theology looks at what about those moments when you're hungry and you need to be fed? or your, your body has needs to rest or, or to breathe or needs space to live. And Dolores Williams looks at the story of Hagar, who was the Egyptian slave and concubine of, um, of Abram and, and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah, um, and looks at her story and the ways that she fled to survive and to ensure a future for her son. I think the chapter that tore me up the most from Dr. Reyes's book is chapter three, The Game is Rigged. Because one of the things that we are taught to believe, I'm going to speak from the Black experience, is that, that we are able to achieve excellence. We go to, we finish high school, we go to college, maybe some of us go to grad school. We get the house, we get the family, we get our lives together in this way, and we build a quote-unquote legacy. And oftentimes this is uh, used with the moniker Black Excellence or Black Girl Magic. And like we're just told that like if we do these things, if we play the game, we can achieve the success that has been modeled to us by previous generations. And this idea of achieving success is actually a part of what sustains the strong black woman myth that 
Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes talks about in her book, Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden of Strength. Dr. Barnes writes, the strong black woman was imagined to combat a slew of negative stereotypes about black women. The black women who are who were blamed for the downfall of the race. However, it was not designed to remove the burden in many ways. It increased it. In Dr. Reyes's story, in Nobody Cries When We Die, the game is to play the part of the minority student who comes to the predominantly white seminary, receives education that hardly challenges the dominant status quo, even in ways where, you know, other, um, other theologies are tokenized and included. Um, but then you go off, you graduate, you succeed, you make the seminary look good, and you go back to your community and you do the work somehow, some way that makes that journey seem worth it. And he keeps reiterating that the game is rigged. And I just like in the Brene Brown kind of way, just wanted to take the book and just like throw it across the room <laughs> so many times. And I'm going to like open parentheses mention here, um, Willie James Jennings's book after whiteness and education and belonging, because so many of the themes in this chapter are like well supported and expanded in Jennings's book. Um, it explains why um, spaces like any, well, any school in the West, but specifically theological education can feel like a space that is shaping and forming you in a way that is counter to um, so many minoritized bodies in the world. Um, close parentheses, back to Dr. Reyes's book. And so the ways in which that we're called to perform in those spaces are diminishing of ourselves and our personalities and our ways of being. And when you fail at that performance, the idea is like, oh, well, I mean, like, well, grad school isn't for everyone. And he actually quotes this from someone on page 53. Yeah, grad school isn't for everyone. I mean, like, if you just can't hack it, just go home. And for him, the truth was that it's impossible to do well and maintain your integrity in certain ways um, and resist that formation um, if, if white supremacy is the value, the underlying value of these institutions. And he even reaches for Bell Hooks, a different book than I read for my class, um, but it's called Teaching Community, A Pedagogy of Hope. And Bell Hooks talks about um, a, a space of, of mutuality in the classroom where teacher and student are joined together and working in partnership. And and as we know um, from Bell Hooks, she's learning from, from Paulo Freire. And Freire's whole concept of education, it, it blurs the line between teacher and student in a way where maybe the teacher sets up the conditions of the space to to create that kind of liberative praxis. Um, but other than that, the teacher is also able to be transformed and changed, that the student is capable of, of bringing knowledge to the teacher as much as the other way around, and we can all learn from each other. And that's a very different way of learning and being than what we see often replicated in institutions of higher education. So for me, as I consider the limit situation, which is another Freire term to describe the ways in which um, our historical realities feel like a cage around us that we are trapped in, where it restricts our, our movements and our freedoms. For me, the conditions that that meet Black women um, informing this a strong Black women stereotype support a performance that denies rest, that denies good boundaries, that encourages poor health and creates situations where we cannot share our true feelings and, and, and feel that we can be supported and reciprocated in ways that, that help us. So the game is also rigged. But what would it look like to create a space for Black women not just to submit to these conditions, but to actually resist these stereotypes and create new uh, ways of being and to engage the imagination um, to strive to be something more. So for me, when I think about what Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes talks about with the strong black woman being shaped out of this patriarchal and white supremacist world to um, basically put all of the onus for improving, quote unquote, the black race on um, black women resisting that this top-down 
way of understanding and instead uh, creating spaces where Black women can resist leads me right into question number three. Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is a classic. People who care about liberation often cite it as an influence and an inspiration. And for me, my first reading of Pedagogy of the Oppressed was in college. I took a class called Reconciliation and Justice, which was comprised of um, lots of different readings from like Angela Davis and others. Um, And at that time, reading books like that were very difficult for me. So reading Frere, like I found myself confused and stumbling over each of the paragraphs and lines and even phrases and taking my time to understand. And I think even now, I think I'm humbled to kind of reflect back and look at the fact that, wow, um, so many years have gone by and I'm still reading Paulo Freire with like the same closeness and attention and the words still grip me in a way that um, I find to be undoing and life-giving and challenging and consoling. Um, I'm in my third year of my Masters of Divinity program, and people tend to think that because I've reached this level of education, that I've always had the skills to learn in these institutions. Um, but I actually um, grew up in very like impoverished cities and um I was always in remedial reading and math classes all the way through high school. And somehow on the like the institutional track, um, like my the way that I was viewed and seen was like as a like problem student who had difficulty learning. Um, but I read all the time. Like I would go to the library and check out like nine to ten books a week and read those, return them, go back. And it just felt like the ways that I was being educated went against the ways I naturally wanted to learn and exist and to be. So I understood myself as a problem student for much of my time in education. Um, When it came time to go to college, I um, ended up having to go to a community college for a couple of years because I didn't have the kind of credit that I would need the credits I needed to start at a four-year school right away. And so I did a couple of years of community college, and it was actually in community college where I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, I had a professor who, like, really believed in my writing, and she was like, you're really good. Are you sure you're supposed to be in this class? And I'm like, yeah, that's what it says on my transcript, that I need to take this writing class in order to take the next one. So when I finally did get to a four-year college, and in my senior year of of that school, I took this class on Reconciliation and Justice and read Paulo Freire, and I had an epiphany. I am not a problem student. There is nothing wrong with the way that I learn. In fact, um, my resistance to the ways I've been educated, like the questions I would ask professors and teachers that got me into trouble and sent to the principal's office were part of uh, like a critical praxis could be used and engaged to ask questions like, why are things this way? And the more that I learn about justice and injustice um, and how it operates through the systems of education, the more I could understand that the reasons why I was always stuck on the remedial track and the reasons why I developed this understanding that I was a problem student tied to the problem of racism. This idea is supported by Charlene Carruthers' Unapologetic, a Black Queer Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. And she says, anti-Blackness works 24-7 to kill the Black imagination. This takes place when our, when our children are required to attend schools with no art and music programs. It takes place when Black women's hairstyles are deemed unprofessional, ghetto, or simply ugly. The destructiveness is ongoing, chronic, but it is manifested acutely. It tells our children to dream of a better future instead of a better now and in the communities where they live. The killing of the black imagination happens when we are told we should aspire to work downtown and not on the corner next to where we live. Killing the black imagination is both place-based and psychological. It permeates what we watch on television and read on social media. 
And to wrap up this question, a full circle moment for me was being able to teach that same class, Reconciliation and Justice, as part of my contextual education and seminary. In that role, I was able to help students engage and ask questions and pose problems and have conversations and discussions where the answers were not always simple, easy, and clear. And it was wonderful and also terrifying because I'm pretty sure that there are about 20 or so students out there questioning systems and institutions, becoming problem students in the right way. And for me, this further emphasizes that Paulo Freire not only freed me to understand that being a problem for a system and institution was a good thing. But along my journey, I've learned to embrace being a problem teacher, someone who challenges the way things are and helps facilitate conversations for folks to think about what could be. Our next question is to just kind of explain how I arrived at this understanding of rest as vocation. And so for me, this is kind of a take on another definition of vocation that comes from Patrick Reyes, who is a practical theologian, educator, and he also, um, does a lot of work with helping people discern vocation through theological studies. Um, and Patrick Reyes wrote this book called Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. And I recommend this book to seminary students, particularly um, those of us coming from uh, minoritized identities and, and, and communities, because there's a way of being that we are that we are shaped and molded into through these institutions that can be harmful, um, that that forces us to deny the realities of our bodies and the needs of our bodies to nourish our minds and to engage a dualism that is actually death dealing. And in his own story, um, Dr. Reyes talks about um, the challenges he faced in theological education having to confront his own daily realities. And Paulo Freire would call these material conditions like the need for a place to live and work and commuting and um, not being able to to ease into the culture of, the, of a place and feel alienated. All of these things that interrupt the learning process and journey that are just as important and formative in your experience as the syllabus, your classmates, the school itself. And for Dr. Reyes, like he came to this point um, in, in looking at the way vocation is often talked about. Vocation, I mean, Latin comes from the word, uh, I can never say Latin words right, but vocatio, referring to a call or a summoning. And a lot of times we hear vocation being talked about as like a role or a job that one is to play um, where all their gifts and graces that God has given them um, could be utilized. Um, and he actually points to his own understanding that God shaped for him through his story um, at where survival was vocation. So survival as vocation. Um, and because, because he builds it on his life and his reflections um, from like Latinx, liberation theologies and other liberation theologies and practices, um, I kind of like turned the question to myself, like, what is vocation for me in this season? And the season that I was discerning my vocation was the year 2020. The year 2020 was an exhausting year for so many people. And we can argue that 2021 is just as, if not more exhausting than 2020 was. And in the midst of that, I arrived at this understanding that rest was my vocation. And I started to write affirmations about rest and the importance of rest. And one of the affirmations goes like this. Inhale. 
every waking moment does not need to be devoted to learning a marketable skill. Exhale. You are a human being, not a human product. And what I found interesting was that as I shared my affirmations that I was writing from a place of exhaustion and from that place um, of like being honest about my tiredness and letting my tiredness lead and teach me um, a better way, a better way of responding to my own humanity. Um, I found myself in community with others who were affirming and agreeing as they experienced their own kinds of exhaustion and things like that. As I responded to my exhaustion, I picked up books on healing, health care and self-care, boundaries, spiritual formation, and this was just one of them. One of the many books that were offered to me or suggested to me that, that dealt with it. Um, but one of the ways that Dr. Reyes talks about vocation is like, he asks the question, like, how am I to live when the world wants me dead? And from there, he responds with, there are countless times when I could have died or my soul could have perished under the weight of violence in the world. For me, in these instances, vocation has meant God calling me to live. Only when I was fully given the freedom and space to discern what living into full human flourishing looks like was I able to discern a call to do or be anything other than just alive. I didn't mention this earlier, but I first came across this definition um, when I started my contextual education. Uh, one of the things that we were supposed to write about was vocation or our sense of vocation. And this definition was given to me and I responded to it with this understanding that, wow, like survival is my vocation. I have to survive this. And for me as a black woman, as I engage and think about the ways that womanist theology looks at survival, like the book Sisters in the Wilderness by Dolores Williams specifically talks about how survival is just like one of the many stages on the path towards liberation. Often liberation conversations focus around the end goal, around revolution, around uh, protest and and the fight, whatever it is that is seen as like these um, epic moments, uh, these totalities. Um, but womanist theology looks at what about those moments when you're hungry and you need to be fed or your, your body has needs to rest or, or to breathe or needs space to live. And Dolores Williams looks at the story of Hagar, who was the Egyptian slave and concubine of um, of Abram and and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah, um, and looks at her story and the ways that she fled to survive and to ensure a future for her son. I think the chapter that tore me up the most from Dr. Reyes's book is chapter three, The Game is Rigged. Because one of the things that we are taught to believe, I'm going to speak from the black experience, is that, that we are able to achieve excellence. We go to, we finish high school, we go to college, maybe some of us go to grad school. We get the house, we get the family, we get our lives together in this way, and we build a quote unquote legacy. And oftentimes this is uh, used with the moniker black excellence or black girl magic. And like, we're just told that like, if we do these things, if we play the game, we can achieve the success that has been modeled to us by previous generations. And this idea of achieving success is actually a part of what sustains the strong black woman myth that Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes talks about in her book, Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden of Strength. Dr. Barnes writes, the strong black woman was imagined to combat a slew of negative stereotypes about black women. The black women who are, who were blamed for the downfall of the race. However, it was not designed to remove the burden in many ways. It increased it. <laughs> 
in Dr. Reyes's story in Nobody Cries and We Die, the game is to play the part of the minority student who comes to the predominantly white seminary, receives education that hardly challenges the dominant status quo, even in ways where, you know, other, um, other theologies are tokenized and included. Um, but then you go off, you graduate, you succeed, you make the seminary look good, and you go back to your community and you do the work somehow, some way that makes that journey seem worth it. And he keeps reiterating that the game is rigged. And I just like in the Brene Brown kind of way, just wanted to take the book and just like throw it across the room <laughs> so many times. And I'm going to like open parentheses mention here, um, Willie James Jennings's book, After Whiteness, An Education and Belonging, because so many of the themes in this chapter are like well supported and expanded in Jennings's book. Um, it explains why um, spaces like any, well, any school in the West, but specifically theological education can feel like a space that is shaping and forming you in a way that is counter to um, so many minoritized bodies in the world. Um, close parentheses, back to Dr. Reyes's book. And so the ways in which that we're called to perform in those spaces are diminishing of ourselves and our personalities and our ways of being. And when you fail at that performance, the idea is like, oh, well, I mean, like, well, grad school isn't for everyone. And he actually quotes this from someone on page 53. Yeah, grad school isn't for everyone. I mean, like, if you just can't hack it, just go home. And for him, the truth was that it's impossible to do well and maintain your integrity in certain ways um, and resist that formation um, if, if white supremacy is the value, the underlying value of these institutions. And he even reaches for Bell Hooks, a different book than I read for my class, um, but it's called Teaching Community, A Pedagogy of Hope. And Bell Hooks talks about um, a, a space of, of mutuality in the classroom where teacher and student are joined together and working in partnership. And and as we know um, from Bell Hooks, like she's learning from, from Paulo Freire. And Freire's whole concept of education, it, it blurs the line between teacher and student in a way where maybe the teacher sets up the conditions of the space to to create that kind of liberative praxis. Um, but other than that, the teacher is also able to be transformed and changed, that the student is capable of, of bringing knowledge to the teacher as much as the other way around, and we can all learn from each other. And that's a very different way of learning and being than what we see often replicated in institutions of higher education. So for me, as I consider the limit situation, which is another Freire term to describe the ways in which um, our historical realities feel like a cage around us that we are trapped in, where it restricts our, our movements and our freedoms. For me, the conditions that that meet black women um, informing this a strong black women stereotype support a performance that denies rest, that denies good boundaries, that encourages poor health and creates situations where we cannot share our true feelings and, and, and feel that we can be supported and reciprocated in ways that, that help us. So the game is also rigged. But what would it look like to create a space for Black women not just to submit to these conditions, but to actually resist these stereotypes and create new uh, ways of being and to engage the imagination um, to strive to be something more. So for me, when I think about what Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes talks about with the strong black woman being shaped out of this patriarchal and white supremacist world to um, basically put all of the onus for improving, quote unquote, the black race on um, black women, resisting that, this top-down way of understanding, and instead uh, creating spaces where black women can resist, leads me right into question number three. Before I continue, I just want to say that I started recording this episode a couple months ago, and I am turning to questions three and four now two days after 
the passing of Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks passed in her home, surrounded by friends and family, on December 15th, 2021, at the age of 69. She is an ancestor now. And as someone who is new to her scholarship in so many ways, I also think about the ways in which people who have taught me, who have impacted my life, have been impacted by her and her work. I think about the ways in which um, it's hard to do this work of critical pedagogy without acknowledging her legacy. And I know a world of Black women in education, in academia, who are deeply saddened and are grieving at this time alongside so many folks who have been impacted by Bell Hooks' work. And because the work I do focuses so much on Black women, it is hard not to feel the weight of her words shaping and affirming us and reminding us who we are, reminding us what is ours to carry and what does not belong to us. Her work is a homecoming for so many of us. Her words release life and her legacy is love. Rest in peace, Bell Hooks, Gloria Watkins. You will be surely missed. Question number three. Praxis is such an important part of critical pedagogy. And beyond conversations, what does praxis look like for Dear Soft Black Women? So Paulo Freire understands praxis as action and reflection. And the point of critical pedagogy is consciousness raising, um, according to Bell Hooks. And this comes through a process of dialogue, but the dialogue is not the end all be all. Something comes after the dialogue. The hope is transformation. The hope is being able to from that process of reflecting, go back into the world and try again, try something differently, try something better. Um, and then in that trying, reflect and try even better than that. And so there's this endless sense of improving and moving into the world and trying out new things. Um, this understanding is helpful for me because I've been in academia for a while and you can get caught up with thinking that there is a dichotomy between theory and practice um, and that if we spend too much time on theory then nothing gets done um, and if we spend too much time in practice and there's no time for um, reflective moments or thinking through and planning you know strategic and systemic changes and all of that and I appreciate the ways in which Freire and Hooks have helped me to understand that those two are so intimately connected. And through this podcasting adventure, I've gotten to see how the conversations that I have with different people, the, the parts of their stories and worlds that they open up to sharing have helped other people who are listening. And this act of having conversations that aren't being had or um, are creating spaces to hold things that are not being held in other spaces has led to people being transformed and thinking and reflecting on their need for rest and boundaries to protect themselves and their humanity um, from death-dealing systems and relationships. What it comes down to for me is the realization that tiredness and exhaustion are lessons within our bodies. Um, they are sites of knowledge that can inform how we choose our actions in the world, choose the spaces that we want to be if we can. One of my favorite quotes from Paulo Freire comes from Pedagogy of the City, and it says, It is my entire body that socially knows. I cannot, in the name of exactness, 
and rigor negate my body, my emotions, and my feelings. And what I love about this quote is that it holds space for an understanding of what is happening in our bodies as contributing to what we know about ourselves and the world. And even as I affirm that for others and want to believe it desperately for myself, I have to work very hard to actually live into that. Uh, It is a daily struggle. But I know for a fact that I am not where I was a year ago. And I'm so much closer to doing the work that I want to do in the world because I asked myself questions like, what is my tired body telling me? If I trust the wisdom of my body, what does it say about what I need and what makes me feel safe and comfortable? And is it okay for me to value comfort and safety? Do I believe that I deserve those things? And where have I learned to internalize that my body in pain, my mind suffering and in constant anxiety and depression is indication that I am pressing into something that is good for me? Where did I learn those things? And are they worth holding on to? Question number four. As this conversation grows and more voices start speaking into it, what are your hopes for the soft black woman that is listening? And what do you want to see for us? Now I had a different question in mind for question number four, but I decided to change it to the question that I ask all of the guests who come on to the podcast. And this question has been met with so many beautiful and imaginative and affirming responses of ways in which softness can continue to be explored and expanded. Um, And needless to say, I am excited. I am excited by the ways in which I see this conversation unfolding I'm excited about the voices that I will hear from in the future, and I'm excited when I hear people's responses to the content that is being shared on this platform. And I'm excited to be a part of this because (laughs) there's just so much of this work that really just like, you know, it, it gets so easy to like second guess yourself and not to believe, um, in the possibilities that are outlined, um, the hopes that are outlined. Um, But in those moments with hearing people respond to this question and then sharing their affirmations, um, I'm being ministered to and I am receiving um, and letting myself be filled by their visions and their dreams. There's this concept that um, translated from Freire into English as untested feasibility And that is the stuff that we are constantly reaching for outside of what we know. And there needs to be a space for the imagination because so much of this work um, of of trying to create change, transformation, revolution is about pushing towards a world we haven't seen yet. And, And thinking about how to best answer the question of what my hopes are is that we who are on this journey of navigating softness for ourselves and for the future black women, black people who who deserve and need softness in the world, is that we could live faithfully between starshine and clay. And for me, this, this, you know, that's a quote from Lucille Clifton, who, if you are a member of my Patreon, um, this is the part where I tell you all about how you know, you should support me on Patreon. But if you are on Patreon, you know that I've been sharing my um, reflections on Lucille Clifton. I try to read a poem of Lucille's every day. And that's a part of my spiritual practice in this season. 
But Starshine and Clay, before I read the full poem, which I'm sure you know a bit about if you've ever come across Lucille Clifton, you know this poem. Um, but I hear that phrase, and for me, it connects to this idea in Ferre of um, like knowing the longing and seeking the being more, um, which I can't say in Portuguese, so I'm not going to. <laughs> but like to do this work um, is to know this 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 saudade, um, this longing, uh, which you know is, is I miss something but you're not missing in this like looking back into the past but you're missing forward you're longing forward you're yearning um to use a word i feel comes out of bell hooks's work brilliantly um this yearning for for something um and seeking that and moving towards that and hoping towards that and starshine and clay to me is that phrase that um is is holding both this imaginative possibility otherworldliness and the clay of the earth the tangible material the stuff that we know so what does it mean for us to live there faithfully um, and to find moments to move beyond just rest but the reclamation of the energy that comes from being filled um, and like for me rest is my vocation in this season and to talk about this stuff in this work on this platform has given me a way of exercising that vocation but the true goal that the true goal of of this movement for me is to get to the place after rest where you open your eyes and you realize that you have the capacity to do and be more in the world in ways that don't drain or deplete you but fill you with much more energy, hope, and capacity to live into the fullness of your life. And so to close, I will share this poem by Lucille Clifton as an affirmation. I also wanted to use this time in this space to remind you that your input is valuable and we want to hear from you. If you are a soft black woman and you're listening, um, do let us know like how you are processing different episodes and ideas that are coming to your mind and the ways in which you're understanding softness. And there are several ways that you can do that. One, if you listen on Spotify, um, I will try to, in this episode and in future episodes, to um, include polls, uh, poll questions, or short answer question prompts that you can engage with. Two, you could become a Patreon and join our community care group for Black women, which is an initiative that will start in the year 2022. So sometime next month, there will be more intentional ways to engage and interact specifically for Black women on Patreon. And three, you can always be in touch via social media um, to me directly and on Twitter and IG, you can follow me as at rose j percy all one word and send your questions send your thoughts send your what's inspiring you and what's challenging you um i would love to hear your feedback and your responses and so here's my first question to you to engage with as you take away thoughts from this episode what does incorporating a praxis of softness look like in your life when it comes to thinking about praxis as both theory, like action and reflection, um, what are the ways in which you're being soft in this season? And what are you learning from those ways? Or, you know, you can start from theory first and think of it this way. Um, what ideas have you heard in this episode and previous episodes that you want to incorporate into your life into the next season? And so do you consider what does a praxis of softness look like for you? And feel free to share your responses to me in any of the ways that I've mentioned. Won't you celebrate with me? What I have shaped into a kind of life, I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up, here on this bridge between star, shine, and clay, 
my one hand holding tight my other hand come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed ashe